Hello, and welcome back to the Jewish's podcast. Today, we are going to get right back into it with yet another episode diving into the amazing world of Jewish folklore. This one is going to focus on just one of my favorite Jewish creatures on the lesser known side. Previously, we have focused on creatures uh, that are a little bit more well known. Uh, And we've also included creatures that are the Jewish version or Jewish understanding or Jewish iteration of creatures that already exist outside, right? Like werewolves, mermaids, vampires, and dragons, which you should listen to those episodes, of course. But you wanted to know more about other Jewish creatures, and these are going to be some of our lesser known ones. I don't think I have any housekeeping other than the reminder that I have a Patreon, which starts from $1 per month, which means you'll have access to behind the scenes, voting on which podcasts will be put out, as well as Patreon-only Instagram stories, and a host of other benefits, which you can find over on my Patreon, which is always linked in the description. This episode topic was picked by my patrons, and I think that's it. So let's just dive right in with one of my favorite little creatures, mud mice. Before we talk about what a mud mouse is or what mud mice are, we need to talk a little bit about some historical details. The science that we have now is not the science that we have always had. Jews have historically been on the cutting edge of science. We have always nurtured some of the brightest minds. Now, however, when we look back on what was considered the biggest innovations and the foremost frontiers of science, we often laugh and scoff because it's ridiculous now. And one of these examples is that of the concept of spontaneous generation. To quote from Wikipedia, spontaneous generation means both the supposed processes by which different types of life might be repe- might repeatedly emerge from specific sources other than seeds, eggs, or parents, and the theoretical principles presented in support of any such phenomena. Crucial to this doctrine are the ideas that life comes from non-life and that no causal agent, such as a parent, is needed. Supposed examples included the seasonal generation of mice and other animals from the mud of the Nile, the emergence of fleas from inanimate matter such as dust, or the appearance of maggots and dead flesh. Such ideas have something in common with the modern hypothesis of the origin of life, which asserts that life emerged in the early ages of the planet over a time of at least millions of years and subsequently diversified. So, in summation for the non-STEM folk, spontaneous generation is exactly what it sounds like. The idea that certain creatures just pop up and start existing rather than are born or hatch from eggs. For a lot of these creatures, it came down to not having observed their life cycle. Uh, They didn't necessarily have a uh, conceptualization of how certain creatures came to be yet. For example, people would leave out food, it would rot, and suddenly there'd be flies and maggots everywhere, and they didn't see the fly eggs, so they just assumed that maggots and flies just spontaneously showed up. The mud mice, as you can assume, are believed to pop up from the earth. And while we are now, we now obviously have the science to understand the life cycle of mice, if you didn't understand the life cycle, believing that they pop from the earth covered in dirt wasn't uncommon. And while we're talking about the Jewish mud mouse and Jewish understanding and perspective, Jews were not the only people to believe in spontaneous generation or the spontaneous generation of mice. 
thinkers like Aristotle and Pliny the Elder and more partook in this theory in some form. The idea that mice grew from the ground wasn't unique to Jewish communities. Like I said, in Egypt, the idea that creatures like insects, frogs, mice, crocodiles, and more were born out of the fertile grounds of the Nile was commonplace. But the reason that it survived in our mythology is that it's been entrenched into our texts. The Rambam Maimonides, who is one of the rationalists who often scoffed at the mystical within Judaism, even went as far as disparaging people who didn't believe in the possibility of spontaneous generation. To quote, it is not impossible that vermin be created from rot inside food, except as far as the fools who have no knowledge of the natural world are concerned, as they believe that all creatures cannot be generated except via a male-female relationship, since this is what they see transpires in most cases. Sefer HaMitzvot Losas 179, or another translation via Safaria, And it is only among fools that it be impossible that the ant or wasp or other types of birds and swarming things come to exist from rotten food. For they have no knowledge of natural science, but rather think that it is impossible in all of the species that one come to exist from another except through a male and a female, since this is what they see. Here we are seeing the Rambam be in rather clear support of spontaneous generation as a theory, but we'll get back to his discussion of the mud mouse specifically later. While the idea of spontaneous generation has been debunked since the time, obviously, the mythology of the mud mouse has persisted and lived on. So what is a mud mouse? To quote, A mouse which is half flesh and half earth. If someone touches the flesh part, he becomes tamay, spiritually impure, and if it touches the flesh parts, he remains tahor, spiritually pure. Mishnah Chulin 9.6 Now, this series of discussion also discusses the spontaneous generation of insects, but we're sticking only with the mud mouse because it's much cuter. And let me read the Safaria translation. In the case of a mouse that grows from the ground and is half flesh, half earth, one who touches the half that is flesh is impure, but one who touches the half that is earth is pure. Rabbi Yehuda says, even one who touches the half that is earth where it is adjacent to the flesh is ritually impure. Now, Rabbi Yehuda's bold statement that if you touch the earth half is hotly disagreed with, including by Baltanura, who literally went outright and stated, but the halacha is not according to Rabbi Yehuda, which is a devastating sentence. It's not up to you, Rabbi Yehuda, is essentially what he's saying. The saying of uh, the Talmud as a Reddit thread of rabbis has never been more applicable. One guy says, that's not it. And he goes, well, it's not up to you, bud. Anyway, moving back to the mud mice, however. Uh, Baltanura has more to say. There is a species of mouse which is not which does not is not fruitful and multiply, but rather from itself it is formed the ground like garbage that breed, breeds worms. And if it still has not completed the creation of the mouse other than from one side, the right or left, he who touches the flesh is ritually impure. The earth over against the flesh is pure. Now, not to start drama between two rabbis, this quote sounds almost exactly like Rashi's quote on the same topic, except Rashi came first by a few hundred years. According to Wikipedia, uh, uh, Ovadiah ben Avraham of Bartinoro, commonly known as the Bartinura, was a 15th century Italian rabbi best known for his popular commentary on the Mishnah. In his later years, he rejuvenated the Jewish community of Jerusalem and became recognized as the spiritual leader of the Jews of his generation. Born 
1445, uh, Bertinoro, Italy. While Rashi, Shlomo Yitzchaki, today generally known by the acronym Rashi, was a medieval French rabbi and author of a comprehensive commentary on the Talmud and commentary on the Hebrew Bible, born February 22nd, 1040, in Troyes, France. And knowing that Rashi was a Pisces explains so much. Uh, also, fun little fun fact, uh, both Batanura and Rashi are both now popular brands of kosher wine. Both delicious, though my family is much more loyal to Rashi. As an adult, I have dabbled in Batanura, though. Anyway, I'm not saying that Batanura just ripped off what Rashi said, but I think he just borrowed what Rashi said, which we're going to discuss in a second. So here we're learning that the mud mouse is a mouse that pops up from the ground and is half made of mud and half made of earth. And according to Rashi, it's either the right or left side. <laughs> this is very funny. Now, when I was reading Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin's writing, and of course, side note once again to mention that having both the title of rabbi and doctor is so cool, he says that Rashi explains that the mouse is being generated from the earth, completing the formation of different parts of his body at different times, which implies that the mouse will eventually become entirely flesh. The actual quote, which we can all agree sounds exactly like what Batanur was saying a few hundred years later, there is a type of mouse which does not form via procreation, but is formed of its own accord from the earth, just like a garbage heap which generates swarms of worms. If only one side, right or left, of the mouse has been created so far, when one touches the flesh, he becomes impure, but if he touches the facing part of the earth, he remains pure. Now, in Sanhedrin 91a, the mouse is brought back up with the belief that it definitely does become entirely flesh. To quote, A certain sectarian said to Rabbi Ami, you say that the dead will live again, but they become dust, and can dust come alive? He replied, go out to the field and see the rodent that one day is half flesh and half earth, and one, day, and one the next day it has transformed into a creeping creature and has become entirely flesh. So here we're seeing the use of the mud mouse's eventual transformation into an entirely flesh mouse as proof of a resurrection of the dead. However, the idea that the mice eventually become entirely flesh is either a given or just not thought of in the mythologies or stories I've come across, um, with some kind of implying that it doesn't transform all the way. Like I said in my video about this, these mice don't serve any purpose other than existence. They don't have ulterior motive. They're just mice who happen to be made out of mud. They just exist. And so stories about them aren't really that interesting other than the fact that they're mud mice, they usually go along the lines of, there are mice made out of mud and flesh, or our fields are infested with mud mice, or the mice, they, inf they got muddy footprints everywhere. Like, that's about it. But boy, am I about to throw a fluffy-tailed wrench into the discussion because, to quote, in his commentary on Sanhedrin 91a, Rashi explains that the mouse formed from the earth, rather than by mating and whelping, is the squirrel. He writes... Mouse that called a squirrel, and some of this species are not born by reproduction. Rashi suggested, suggested that the term mouse be identified with a squirrel in another Talmud discussion as well. Tractate Avodazara 68b discusses whether a mouse, which is an impure animal, Leviticus 11.29, who falls into a cask of beer prohibits the entire cask or not. The discussion includes the claim that the field mouse, apparently 
Mus macedonicus, which lives in the wild, should be distinguished from the town mouse, i.e. one that lives in habitated areas and in houses. Mus domesticus. The story of the town mouse versus the country mouse just got a whole lot more interesting. The author of this paper, Abraham Ophir uh, Shemesh, writes on the speculation that the reason that he makes this distinction is that the wild mouse was considered by some to be a delicacy. And just like the squirrel was eaten, the domestic, uh, the wild mouse was eaten, but the domestic mouse wasn't eaten. So he conflated the wild mouse and the squirrel because mud mice grew outside rather than living indoors and wild mice could be eaten. Squirrels could be eaten. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure I buy it. And most other places, they're very specific that it's a mouse, but uh, a lot of the terminology is unspecific. So they use the term vermin or creeping creatures, but... Most of the time they're specific. I'm sticking with mouse. I'm not doing a half. Though I guess a half mud squirrel could also be interesting. Though this was a very intense reminder that Rashi is in fact French. Now remember how I said we would get back to the Rambam. Well, we're back to the Rambam because there's a quote that can be interpreted in two drastically different ways. It's either expressing a lot of skepticism or it's expressing very strong support, depending on how you read it. While we remember that earlier the Rambam does support the idea of spontaneous generation, that doesn't mean he doesn't believes in the mud mouse specifically. Rabbi Slifkin brings up that Rabbi Yosef Kapach, uh, 1917 to 2000, who was an expert on the Rambam, believes that this quote expresses skepticism. And because this man was an expert who studied the Rambam, his opinion holds a lot of weight. A lot of people agree that this quote uh, is expressing skepticism. But the quote says, the case of the mouse, which uniquely yours from the earth, so that it is half flesh and half dust and mud, is very well known. There is no end to the countless numbers of those who have told me that they have seen it, even though the existence of this creature is astonishing and there is no known explanation for it. So it sounds like he's like, whoa, that's, that's wild. But it's unclear of whether or not he's saying, it's amazing. What a miracle. I don't have an explanation for it. Or, yeah amazing. I don't have an explanation for it. However, Rabbi Kapach, the expert, regarding the mouse that emanates from the dirt, our masters, Rambam's version of Mishnah Nechulin 9.6 is a crawling creature, Sharetz, that is half flesh and half earth. However, in his commentary here, he writes mouse. Our master there avoids admitting its existence, and it seems from his words that he thinks it's a fictional creature, even though he rules, like the Mishnah, in Hechos Avos Hatumos 4.11, our Mishnah is regarding if such a creature would be found. This is what our master wrote in his commentary here. This is a well-known matter. There is no end to the number of people who have told me that they have seen it. This is despite the fact that the existence of such a creature is astonishing, and I do not know of any explanation for it. Like our master wrote, even in our day, there is no end to those, both Jewish and Gentile, who say they have seen this mouth mouse. According to them, they've seen dozens of them in the fields after a rain. Because of this, I spent many days trying to find this creature. While there are mice in the fields that look this way, when I learned about them, it became clear that their hind quarters are covered in mud, and they are really just mice like all other mice. They all they remain fictional like our master implied. In all the Hebrew and Arabic zoology texts I studied in my youth, I did not find any mention of such a creature. So, 
Here we have to reckon with how Jews disagree in the manner of how they're split in half. Rashi and previous commentators have said that they were split in half left to right, which is adorable. But here we have in the, Rabbi, Rabbi, in the writing of Rabbi Kapach, and his search for the Mudmaus, he went looking for one that was split down the middle, as in the front half was flesh and the back half was mud. I'm assuming. I'm assuming. And I found a few descriptions like this, including stories of uh, tiny paw prints, front and back, but those are very colloquial. Um, so it's unclear. And there are discussions about what could this creature possibly be. I don't really enjoy these discussions very much, so I don't focus on them too heavily. A lot of people suggested mole, vole, essentially any ground rodent creature that could come out of the earth. Essentially, any creature that's covered in mud, any mouse-like creature covered in mud, yep, that makes sense to me. I also want to make it clear, because I did have some comments on my videos, it is the human being who touches the mouse that becomes impure, not the mouse. The idea of becoming spiritually impure when coming into contact with these mice is applicable to humans, not the mouse itself. So if you touch the mouse's impure half, you would become impure, again, not the mouse. Now, I do want to take a moment to tell a great story from the alphabet Ben Sirah, which I thought was fun. And it's about cat and mice, though not mud mice specifically. Um, but I thought it was worth it. To quote, he said to him, why do cats eat mice more than any other vermin? He said to him, at the beginning, the cat and the mouse were friends. Once the mouse went and slandered the cat to the Holy Blessed One, he said to them, ruler of the world, the cat and I are partners and we have nothing to eat. They said to him, you slandered your friends so that you could eat from him. Now he will eat you and you will be his food. He said to them, rule of the world. But what did I do? They said to him, oh, impure vermin, haven't you learned a lesson from the sun and the moon, which were equal in stature and appearance? But because the moon slandered the sun, I reduced the luminaries and added unto the sun. Thus you too have slandered your friend to feed you. Therefore he will eat you. He said to them, ruler of the world, if this is the case, then I and my offspring will be destroyed. They said to him, I will allow a remnant of you to remain as I did for the moon. Immediately the mouse went and bit the cat on his head and the cat jumped and threw the mouse to the earth and bit him and he died. At that moment, the hatred of the cat for the mouse descended and therefore they eat them. And so that, my dear listeners, is the mysterious mystical case of the adorable mud mouse just a mouse, living its little mud mouse life, made half out of mud and half out of mouse. We are now going to take an excursion into yet another very strange Jewish creature, but one that is closer to human. Remember that time that I said that the golem was arguably the closest to humanity out of the mythical creatures between humans and Earth? I was wrong. I was wrong. If we look at a sliding scale of the of Earth on the left, middle is human, right is divide, divine, I would go Earth, Gollum, this creature, then humans, and on way on the other end, divinity. But that's just my ranking. So what is this creature? It is known as Adne Hasadeh, or in English, men of the field, men of the mountains, or colloquially, vegetable men. Unlike the mud mouse, which just continues to pop up like mice continue to breed, the veggie men are a bit different. According to legend, before the creation of Adam, the first human, Hashem had some failed creations. 
Think first pancake, which always comes out a little bit messed up. To quote, Little record remains of these early attempts that were created and then destroyed or permitted to become extinct. But it is known that before God created Adam, he created a creature called Adne Sadeh. This creature had a form that closely resembled that of a man, but Adne Sadeh was attached to the earth by means of a navel cord, upon which its life depends. This cord, it is true, sometimes grew to great lengths of more than a mile, but in any case the creature was confined to this radius, for if the cord snapped, its life would end. Thus the creature sustained itself with those fruits and vegetables that grew within the circle, and by occasionally capturing animals who approached it too closely. These omnivorous creatures were plants in the sense that they required their connections to the earth to survive. And don't mention air plants, which don't need it, okay? But they were humanoid in all other senses. And it's noted that they weren't easy to kill, but only massive disasters or the cutting or severing of the cord could kill this creature. And what killed off these creatures? Well, according to some, the Great Flood, like the Flood of Noah and his Ark. Guess those cords were not long enough for them to float, or they couldn't swim or hold their breath. And these creatures are discussed in the Talmud and in other Jewish quote, uh, texts. To quote, Adne Hasadeh is rated as a chaya. Rabbi Rossi says, It causes spiritual impurity when dead in a building like a human being. Yossi Araki says, They are the bar nash de tour, and it lives via its navel. If its navel is detached, it cannot live. Now, if you have not read my blog post or listened to my podcast on the topic of Jewish divination, I highly recommend that you do so because what we're about to talk about is important for understanding something we've talked about in those episodes before or in that blog post. And I wish I had this knowledge of this specific commentary before, uh, but I will read, get you caught up so you can understand. To quote from my own blog post, according to Safaria, Leviticus 19.31 states, Do not turn to ghosts and do not inquire of familiar spirits to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God, which is definitely frequent, which is quite frequently used to discuss the supposed ban on all divination. However, according to the commentary, Yudoni is one who puts a bone of an animal, the name of which is y- Yadua in his mouth, and the bone speaks. This is consistent with Chabad's interpretation of the line as, do not turn to the idols called Ov or Yidoni. According to Chabad, the ninth prohibition is that we are forbidden from performing the practice of Yidoni. It is also a form of idolatry in which the person takes a bone from the bird called the Yadua, places it in his mouth, burns incense, utters certain words, and performs certain actions until he reaches a state similar to unconsciousness when he goes into a deep sleep and predicts the future. Our sages say Yidoni is when the person places a bone from the Yadua in his mouth and it speaks by himself. There is even clarity here on the nature of the sentences not being used as a sweeping generalization regarding all forms of divination. Do not think that this prohibition is in the category of a general prohibition. Now, back to the vegetable men. Rabbi Yitzhak ben Rabbi Moshe of Vienna, uh, 1180-1250, writes, Rabbeinu Shimshom explained in the name of Rabbi, Rabbi Meir of Ashpira, a blessed memory, that it is an animal whose name is Yadua, and it is the Yidoni of scripture, and sorcery is performed with its bone. A type of large cord emerges from the root in the ground where the animal called Yadua grows, just as with cucumbers and gourds. But the Yadua is formed in the shape of a man in every way, in the form of its face, its body, its hands and feet, and is attached to the cord that emerges from the root via its navel. No creature can approach it to the length of the cord, for it mauls and kills everything. It grazes it in its surroundings to the length that its cord reaches. When people come to trap it, they cannot come near it, so they shoot at the cord until it is severed, and it dies immediately. 
1288. So here's the fascinating thing. As it points to in the idea that while Chabad says that the animal is a bird, Rabbi Meir of Ashpira is saying that the bones that they are using in this ritual for divination are the bones of the mountain men, the men of the field, the vegetable men that were taken and used for divination. So you take these bones as a, and use them in the ritual, which would obviously add a very specific level to the forbiddance of divination. We know that the defiling of dead bodies is forbidden within Judaism. And we know that based on the earlier discussion, like I mentioned earlier, the bodies of these creatures are capable of causing ritual impurity by being in a home. So if you were to take one of the corpses, and assuming they died in the Great Flood, a bone from their burial ground or an excavation, to take a bone and to place it in your mouth to touch and defile a corpse and to touch and defile a burial place and not just have the corpse in your home, but to put it in your mouth of all places would be a huge no-no. And that places a whole new spin on the prohibition uh, we see within Leviticus. It's a very interesting, interesting discussion to have. Now, there are other theories on what the Yidoni, I'm sorry, what Yidoni is referring to and what the Yadua animal is, but we'll save that for another episode of Lesser Known Jewish Creatures because I think it deserves its own full-on discussion, but I did want to bring it up here because I thought it was fascinating. And if you're wondering why you haven't heard of these vegetable men in Hebrew school, there was a perfect opportunity, though it does clash with the idea that we're all killed in the flood. To quote, Interestingly, the Vilna Gaon, a revered 18th century scholar, used the corded version of the Adne Hasadeh to better explain the plague of wild animals that befell the Egyptians when the Jews were slaves in Egypt. The verse states that as punishment, the Egyptians would be attacked by wild animals and the ground upon which they are. The Vilna Gaon comments that one of the wild animals brought to attack the Egyptians were the Adne Hasadeh, who came with the ground to which they were attached. And there is a midrash that Rabbi Slifkin relates to the story of the vegetable man, Midrash Tanhuma, introduction. To quote, For your covenant is with the Adne Hasadeh. It writes, Avne, and what does it mean? Admai, men. There was an incident with an old, certain old man who was a guest in a certain place in the house of a pious man who received him with great honor. In the afternoon, the householder's wife said to her husband, My lord, what shall we eat tonight in the honor of the guest? He replied, Our man. The old man heard and grew nervous, and he said to himself, Perhaps in this place they eat each other, and just as they are eating this person in my honor, so too might they eat me in the honor of the next guest. The old man left the house and went to another home. When the time of the meal arrived, the first householder went and asked all of his neighbors if they had seen the old man who came to his house. One of them told him which house he had entered, and he went and found him at the table. He said to him, My lord, why did you do this to leave my house? Arise and come to me. The old man replied, I shall not go. He pleaded with him several times, but to no avail, and he left. After the first householder had left, the second one said to him, Why did you do this to embarrass that pious man who is a God-fearing man? The old man said to him that he had heard and said, I was so afraid that my innards were trembling, and thus I fled and came here. The householder began laughing and said, Have you never read the book of Job? The old man replied that he had. The householder said, 
It is written, For your covenant is with the Avne Hasadeh, writing about the Admai. In our place, there's a type of vegetable that grows from the ground like other plants, and is in the form of a man rooted in the ground. When it emerges from the ground, the head emerges first, until it has entirely emerged from the ground. In its middle, where in other people there is a kind of pit, it has a cord attached. And this is what it means with, For your covenant is with the Avne Hasadeh. And the animals in the field shall make peace with you, that they are not allowed to damage this man. I think that's such a funny story. Uh, one, the idea that this man heard that they're eating people. And instead of sticking around, like you might see in a modern horror movie, he said, I'm absolutely out of here. Nope, they're not eating me. Not today. Uh, and he just, he, he, he went to the next guy's house. But I also love that they grow from the earth, and I love that they mention that where in most people they have a pit, referring to your belly button, which clearly they're talking about innies, not outies, but I digress. Like Jews do with everything, we heavily debate about the vegetable men. This includes, in detail, debates about their existence, how they could possibly be, etc. What they could possibly be. Are they actually just orangutans or primates? Some people think that they are a metaphor, while other people scoff at the idea that they're a metaphor. Um, there's a very interesting phenomenon. If you've ever read a lot of Jewish texts, if you were to use modern terminology to describe what's happening, uh, essentially, some rabbis are calling out other rabbis for being, for lack of a better word fake deep uh again others thought that it was an ape because along with the fact that primates and humans are similar there was a very unfortunate typo or suspected typo uh they believe that the original text has been altered not everyone agrees they think that the term man of the field was messed with because the word tour field written in hebrew is tet vav resh and it may have had the middle letter doubled to read tet vav vav resh and then subsequently misread and then they were like oh someone spelled this wrong let me fix it and then they wrote uh tet vet <laughs> vav resh since uh Double Vav frequently transposes with uh, Vet in the Talmud Yerushalmi. And so, subsequently, the field man became the naval man, and their explanation for that was then, hmm, what? A man in a field with a naval. Okay, a, a field man, naval, field man, naval, man grows from field via his naval man, vegetable man, essentially. It's a very, very quickened version of that typo talk. Now, Rabbi Lipschutz gives us a very interesting commentary, and he says that there's nothing to say that the cord is attached to the ground. We just see that the cord is attached to the man. And that is extremely menacing, considering what we've heard of these vegetable men before, considering that uh, in other stories, they are said to maul anything that comes within their radius. So I prefer the idea that they are attached to the ground, can only stay within their self-imposed uh, leash radius. Now I am going to wrap up the conversation on vegetable men, because while we could go on to quote the more rational ideas of what they are and the zoology discussions, 
I prefer the veggie tails. That was very bad. I'll see myself out. My patrons were adamant that I include these in this episode. And this is why we're doing it. Otherwise, I would have saved this last creature for another day. So if you're thinking of a reason to join my Patreon, this is a great one. If you're thinking, what is up with creatures growing like plants? Keep it up because tree geese, tree goose singular, of course, is the next victim of this phenomena. Tree geese are exactly what they sound like. Geese born from trees rather than hatching from eggs laid by mother geese as we normally would see them. Now, before we get too far into tree geese, it's important to note that like with mud mice, the idea of a tree goose was not that far out there and was accepted by both Jewish and non-Jewish scholars because to quote Rabbi Sifkin, numerous Torah scholars of the early medieval period believed that certain birds would grow from trees. So a goose growing from a tree would be fine if you believed that other birds could do it too. And considering that birds often nest in trees, it's not really that surprising. But how did these geese grow? To quote Rabbi Pinchas Horowitz, Sefer Habris, there is a type of bird that grows on a tree, and when the time comes that it has fully ripened, it falls from the tree and lives. In the country of Ireland, near England, in the place called Soland, there's a type of goose that grows on the trees that are planted by streams, and when their time comes, they fall from the trees into the water and live and grow in the water. But this is not the first mention of tree geese. Now, we have written accounts from non-Jews, uh, like Geraldus Cambrensis, or Gerald of Wales, who was a Cambro-Norman archdeacon of Brecon and historian from the later half of the 12th century. And he's often the person who's cited as one of the most prominent and earliest sources, even though there were Jewish writings on the topic a full century before him. Anyway, he writes, Nature produces in the most extraordinary way. They are like marsh geese, but somewhat smaller. They are produced from fir timber tossed along by the sea, and they are at first like gum. Afterwards, they hang down by their beaks, as if from a seaweed attached to the timber, surrounded by shells, in order to grow more freely. Having thus, in process of time, been clothed with a strong coat of feathers, they either fall into the water or fly, fly freely away into the air. They derive their food and growth from the sap of the wood or the sea by a secret and most wonderful process of alimentation. Alimptitude alimentation. Somehow I suddenly started seeing more teas than there were in that word. I have frequently with my own eyes seen more than thousands of these small bodies of birds hanging down from one piece of timber at the seashore, enclosed in shells and already formed. Now the reason I mentioned there were Jewish writings a full century before Gerald's thing is that Gerald, like so many, was an anti-Semite who tried to convert Jews to Christianity. And he used trichies as a means to do it by trying to compare them and I can't believe I'm saying this, to the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, to quote, Be wise at length, wretched Jew, be wise even though late. The first generation of man from dust without male or female, Adam, and the second generation, the second from male without female, Adam, thou dareth not deny in veneration of thy law. The third alone from male and female, because it is usual, thou approvest and affirmest with thy hard heart, 
brazen face, but the fourth, in which alone is salvation, from female without male, that with obstinate malice thou detest it by thy own destruction, to thy own destruction. Blush, wretch, blush, and at least turn to nature. She is an argument for the faith, and for our conviction procreates and produces animals every day without either male or female. He's literally saying, you believe in Adam, you believe in Eve, you believe in Trigis, why can't you believe in Jesus? Let's just say the argument did not work. It literally did not convince Jews to turn to Jesus. And while some people tried to theorize that it was because of his proselytizing to us that the wretched Jews, as he called us, uh, took the barnacle goose, which is another term for it, in our mythology, we have data showing otherwise. But let's talk about one last Jewish source, which was Thomas Cantipratensis from Buch de Natur, or Book of Nature, and he wrote, This is a bird that grows from wood, and that wood has many branches from which the birds sprout, so that many of them hang from one tree. These birds are smaller than geese and have feet like ducks, but they are black of color. They hang from the tree by their beaks, also from the bark and the trunk. In time, they fall into the sea and grow on the sea until they begin to fly. But these are the non-Jewish accounts. What of Jewish accounts? Well, some cite the Zohar as the main uh, source, as Rabbi Slithkin points out. And there is, a pa- there is a passage that states, When Rabbi Abba saw a fruit tree that produced birds that flew from it, he cried out and said, If people would know what this alludes to, they would tear their close to the navel for the wisdom that has been forgotten from them and boy i really do hope it's alluding to tree geese but um that is not the only citation that we have this is a rather long one from the jewish encyclopedia the etour of isaac ben abba marie of marseille about 1170 the reference is found in a volume of manuscripts uh and the following words are included Uh, and it's specifically in discussion of whether or not such birds may be slaughtered according to ritual slaughter methods. And he says, my teacher, the lion, Sir Leon of Paris, uh, told me that he had heard from his father, Rabbi Isaac Artam, directed that it should be slaughtered after Jewish fashion and sent the decision to the sons of England. According to Jacobs, this is the earliest notice of the legend and it uh, militates against its Irish origin legends, since Artam, who is the grandson of Rashi, lived before the conquest of Ireland. Artam allowed them to be eaten. Jewish scholars in France and Germany discuss whether they were fish or fowl and whether, according to the dietary laws, they were permissible as food. Some authorities answered in the affirmative, others declared them unlawful. Rabbi Samuel Hasid of Speyer, about 1150, and his son Rabbi Yudah Hasid of Regensburg, who died 1216, allowed them to be eaten if, in the common with other species of fowl, they were slaughtered after a Jewish fashion. An anonymous Jewish translator of the French cosmography called uh, image du monde call uh, who compiled his works in 1245 speaks of geese growing on trees in ireland and of people with tails in Brittany. he is the first jewish author to locate the birds on irish shores rabbi isaac b yosef of corbel uh, in his several mitzvot katan written in 1277 was the first to forbid them as a food on the plea that according to their origin they were neither fowl nor fish but belonged to the shellfish species which you won't, we know, not kosher. He seems to have credited the popular belief, then current, these shells grow on trees and open in time of maturity, and that out of them grow those living beings that which, falling into water, do become fowls who become barnacles. Now, the most popular understanding of the thing that they're talking about is the gooseneck barnacle, which is uh, 
a kind of barnacle that looks like a goose, but it's just a barnacle. You can Google it. It looks kind of like a goose. That's it. It, that's, that's a business. It's, I mean, it's very plausible. It's just very boring. Um, there were rabbis who did believe it and there were rabbis who did not. And we're talking very early on who had responses like, it's very interesting if it's true. But I don't think it's that fun to focus on that area, so I'm not going to spend too much time. What it is fun to focus on is the hypothetical discussions that Jews have, which is the fascinating discussion we see regarding blessings and slaughterings of such a creature. Because if you don't know, Jewish blessings for food change based on what the thing is and how it appears. A fruit from a tree has a different blessing than a fruit from the ground. So, for example, like prihaetz uh, or prihadama. Now, normally, meat and poultry is blessed with but if the goose is from a tree not regular meat would it require the blessing you would give for something that you get from a tree which is would you have to do a different one would you have to go with a different prayer now you'll be pleased to learn that there was a ruling in the case of the tree barnacle geese and to quote the birds that grow from the trees and are attached to the tree by their beak rabbi yitzhak forbade them due to flying vermin and likewise my rabbi my teacher rabbi yechiel forbade them which is from the sefer hamitzvah sakatan now calling flying geese vermin feels like you're trying to start a fight with geese but that's just me now, the Shulchan Aruch adopted the ruling, but disagreed that these barnacle geese were flying vermin and said that they weren't flying vermin, they were land vermin, which is, again, just another fight with geese. Some modern interpretations, according to Slifkin, are that these prohibitions are only about eating the geese before they fully ripen and fall to the ground. So if you remember, they are supposed to grow like fruit. Picture a goose hanging from a tree by its beak. So when it gets fully gooseified and it's fully a goose it would fall down and land on the ground uh or land in the water and fly off so when they are still attached to the tree with their beak connecting them you would not be able to eat them you would not be allowed to eat them but some argue that once they fall off they're fine but this is a minority opinion based on specific interpretations of the text right if you remember our Gollum episode, which you should listen to if you haven't, you might remember the discussion of how creatures that have no parents can be eaten outside of the laws of kosher and wouldn't need to be slaughtered. To quote, Regarding birds that grow on trees, there are those that say they do not require a shechita, kosher slaughter, because they do not reproduce sexually and are like any wood. Now, Another rabbi argued that you only have to slaughter it because of the concept of marasayin, or the idea that something is forbidden or shouldn't be done, even though it is in fact permissible, because should someone see it, it could make them think you're doing something impermissible or make them think negatively of you. For a very benign example, think you can technically eat vanilla pudding out of a mayonnaise jar, but you shouldn't because it would make people think you're eating mayonnaise with a spoon, right? Except there are a lot harsher consequences when you're an extremely marginalized ethnic religious group whose religious and cultural practices are consistently and constantly othered while simultaneously held to a higher standard, right? So in the end, inconclusive is what I've come to. I read so many different opinions on whether or not you can eat the tree goose, and it would, it would appear that at different times, different people said you could and or couldn't uh, based on many different factors. I would go with no. 
That would be my personal ruling. And that ends our discussion on the tree goose, which grows from a tree before plopping down to the water to wreak havoc on the world for yet another day. Now, before we finish up for the day and get to sourcing and everything there, I want to read you a quote that very much struck me as I was doing research. It was by Abraham Maimonides, who died in 1237, to quote, Know that whoever supports a particular viewpoint, paying homage to the person who first expressed it and accepting his opinion without first investigating whether the opinion was true or false, espouses intellectual vice. Such vice is forbidden by the Torah and by rational thought. It follows then that we do not support or agree with rabbinical pronouncements on medicine, science, or astronomy merely because of the greatness of the rabbis or because of their expertise in Torah study and exegesis. We rely on them in matters pertaining to Torah, Torah, for they are masters of Torah and they are charged with teaching Torah to the masses, as it says, Deuteronomy 17.11, you shall act in accordance with Torah as they shall teach you. These great sages of blessed memory do not have access to the knowledge that we have access to now. And so on certain topics, their opinions and their writings do, are not the most up to date. We can still glean information. We can still find great wisdom. But that does not mean we have to simply accept it without investigation. We are, as always, to question, to investigate, and to interrogate within ourselves. That is the Jewish way. As always, I want to say thank you to someone who left a really sweet review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to Sophia898989, who left a really, really kind review. I promise I read every single one of them. Reviews, downloads, and subscribes are hugely helpful for boosting the podcast, so make sure to do so if you haven't already. You can follow me on all of your favorite podcast podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. I also want to remind you that you can now rate us on Spotify, which is new, so if you haven't done it, you should. I want to say a huge thank you to all of my patrons. Special shout out to people like Alexandra, Bonnie, Katie, Arashi, Farah, Jackie, MJ. Thank you so much for being part of my Patreon and supporting the podcast. You can stay up to date with me on Instagram, Jewitches, and Twitter, The Jewitches, or you can sign up on my website, Jewitches.com. For sourcing, a huge chunk of this comes from Sacred Monsters, Mysterious, and Mythical Creatures of Scripture, Talmud and Midrash by Rabbi Dr. Natan Slifkin. We have Wikipedia for Spontaneous Generation, Sepharia for the alphabet Ben Sirah, as well as a number of different translations, which I cited earlier, Talmudology, Spontaneous Generation, Wikipedia for Rashi and Bartanura, Lehman uh, Library's uh, publication for the uh, mouse that is half flesh and half earth uh, by... Um, we also have Avraham Ophir Shemesh's Religion versus Science, the Coping of Medieval and Modern Rabbis, with the question of the existence of Talmudic evolutionary mouse. We have Tree of Souls, the Mythology of Judaism by Howard Schwartz, Mythological Creatures in Rabbinic Literature, the Adne Hasadeh and Mud Mice by Michael Schechter, and the Jewish Encyclopedia article on Barnacle Goose. Thank you so much all for listening. I'll see you all next time.